Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. No unit in the Civil War earned a reputation for fighting to match that of Hood's Texas Brigade. You've heard of this famous unit. You might know that it wasn't always commanded by John Bell Hood, or that its regiments weren't all from Texas, or even that it was one of the few Civil War brigades to suffer more casualties from battle than disease. But you may not know just how unique it was in other ways than that. We'll find out about them from Professor Susanna J. Ural, author of Hood's Texas Brigade, The Soldiers and Families of the Confederacy's Most Celebrated Unit, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex here in Greenville, North Carolina, uh, from the home office not from the business office on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, not speaking, therefore, for ECU, which I don't do even when I'm there, not doing it at any point, not speaking for any of ECU's programs or anything else, nor will my guest speak for anything but herself, as we always do on Civil War Talk Radio. In a few nights ago, while lying in bed reading uh, about Hood's Texas Brigade that we'll talk about tonight. I was startled by a knock on the door. It was midnight. People don't usually knock on the door at midnight. 
got up and opened the door, and there was somebody uh, with a delivery from Insomnia Cookies, which if you're on a college campus, you've probably seen. Uh, they're, they're at a lot of places. They apparently deliver cookies to people late at night. I had not ordered any cookies, and my first thought was, sometimes I give the address of the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex here on Oxford Road, and maybe an overzealous listener has sent me cookies at midnight, knowing the address where I live. Uh, turned out that wasn't it. It was just a missed delivery. They were supposed to go across the street, so somebody got cookies. Uh, but maybe I should refrain from giving the exact house number, or I should give it very clearly so that if you do order cookies for me, you get it precisely to the right house. That's that's important. It is approaching the end of the spring semester, another week and a half to go here in Greenville, North Carolina. And the ECU baseball team is continuing to thrill, beat Duke last week, won a series against Houston over the weekend, beat UNC Wilmington yesterday. Next up, uh, they are, the Pirates are playing a series against number one rated national uh, leaders UCLA three games set this weekend for ECU to be playing a national number one in any sport and to have even a fighting chance of winning one of three games is is very big time we're all excited or at least I'm excited I may there are quite a few baseball fans here in Greenville I'll say uh, and, and I've become one of them because I'm a shameless uh, bandwagon jumper and that's the one team at ECU that wins a lot so so Let's go Pirates as we go to UCLA. Uh, speaking of Pirates, we admitted another crop of graduate students to ECU's graduate uh, master's degree program in history and its uh, world-famous program in uh, nautical archaeology, the program in maritime studies, which is part of the history department. We had interesting applicants from all over the world wanting to come to ECU and learn how to do underwater archaeology and history combined. And it's it's really fun to be on the committee that reviews the admission applications. It's, it's sad we can't admit everyone, but it's quite a selective program. I will say this year we did not get any uh, legacy applicants. I don't think we ever have. We don't have any sports in the history department at the graduate level, so we didn't get any photos of people playing sports they don't actually engage in. And we were contacted by no rich or famous people to try to get their children into the graduate program. Uh, so I've not yet been able to monetize my membership on the graduate committee by accepting bribes from the rich or famous because they just seem to want to compete on their merit. And I, uh, I guess we're just stuck with that. I will say I'm fascinated by the idea of parents who would do that sort of thing for their children, talking about the national scandal uh, where, where parents have done just that. I, I saw the terms uh, curling parents used to replace not helicopter parents who hover over their children, but uh, as in the sport of curling, the sweepers who go ahead trying to brush all obstacles out of junior's way so they go through life uh, un, untouched by difficulty. Haven't seen any of those parents here at East Carolina, uh, and certainly haven't seen their money. So uh, let's move on from that. Speaking of money, you are welcome to contribute to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund. Go to 
www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps things going, tells us who's going to be on the show next. Uh, Got a a recurring donation this week, $3 a month uh, recurring. And it occurred to me if, if just this week alone, let's pick a random large number of listeners, say three listeners were to contribute $3 a month, that would make uh, $9, $9 a month, enough to buy a sandwich at Mike's Deli uh, once a week for lunch uh, as a treat going across the street from the Brewster building. So if the show is worth a dollar uh, per show, then $3 puts you ahead because you're getting four shows a month, and I get a sandwich. So think about it. Uh, you can do that using uh, PayPal, the PayPal button, even if you don't have PayPal. And while you're at impedimentsofwar.org or the Impediments of War Facebook page, you can see that next week, Michael Schaefer will be returning to the show, talking about member of the 1st Virginia Cavalry, his memoir called In Memory of Self and Comrades. We'll have Brad Gottfried, another returnee, coming back to the show on April 24 to talk about Maryland's infamous Point Lookout Camp. And on May 1st, uh, Amy Morell Taylor, a first-time visitor to the show, will be discussing her award-winning book, Embattled Freedom, which uh, if you don't read it before the show, you'll read it after. It's really, really quite something. And then on May 8th, Joan Cashin will be discussing War Stuff, excellent title for a book, Things from the War. And uh, wrapping up the month of May early, Gary Gallagher, who everybody here has read multiple books by, I'm sure, Uh, has edited a book of photographs and descriptions of Civil War places, appropriately called Civil War Places. It's a beautiful book from UNC Press, highly recommended just to look at. So we'll talk with uh, Gary, a multiple returner to the show, coming up on May 15th. Then I'll be away at the This Hallowed Ground Tour and Maybe back by the end of the month, I think David Silkenat will be back as a returning guest later in the month with his latest book. So lots coming up in April and May. Uh, check it out online and uh, uh, come see me uh, here in Raleigh, North Carolina, May 13th at the Raleigh Civil War Roundtable. And finally, thanks to uh, everybody at Pamplin Park in Petersburg, Virginia, for their hospitality last week. It was a pleasure talking with you and seeing some uh, listeners to the show. The overlap between Civil War talk radio and Civil War roundtable listeners is not 100%. The, the, the average age of the Civil War roundtable is the same as me. I'm, I've turned 60 and not getting younger. Uh, so uh, we need to, to get these. So, so the intersection between technology-aware people and Civil War roundtable members uh, uh, can only improve over time. But we know that you're listening tonight, so let's go ahead and talk with our guest. Her name is Susanna Ural. She is the author of <clears throat> Hood's Texas Brigade, the Soldiers and Families of the Confederacy's Most Celebrated Unit. Uh, Susanna, are you there? I am. Thank you for having me. Well, welcome back to the show. Uh, it, it's been, I think, over 10 years since you were last here. Uh, 2000, 2007, uh, you were, you'd written about the Irish uh, troops in, in the U.S. ranks, the Harp and the Eagle, uh, and 
Uh, it's good to have you back to uh, talk about this book. Let me start by asking about the uh, the title, Most Celebrated Unit in the Confederacy. Have you gotten uh, hate mail from Stonewall Brigade fans? Not yet, but anything is possible in, in the study of the Civil War, as you, as you well know. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no uh, no limit to what people will take, take umbrage at. How did you become interested in this particular unit? Well, I mean, this, this this project really started after the Harp and Eagle book. I was I was teaching in Texas and at Sam Houston State University at the time, and you know you really can't be a Civil War historian um, in Texas without somebody asking you about well, what do you think about the Texas Brigade? Have you looked at these guys? And I just became fascinated with the unit. Um, just kind of such a hard fighting unit. It would be a great opportunity to study kind of men and kind of the relationship with officers, what makes an elite unit. It just, it held so much possibility. And I just became fascinated. And the book came out of that. I recall reading in Ernest Hemingway's collection of excerpts of stories about men at war, which I think was the title. He had some some excerpts from John Thomason's book, Lone Star Preacher, the novel about the Texas Brigade. And I read that in eighth grade and was, was taken by it. I've uh, is that a? Uh, did you come across that book uh, in your, oh, yes. your research? And and uh, what what do you think of it? I'm just curious. I think hands down it's the best novel of the Civil War. Um, mm. It's a, uh, you know, Thomason is just he's just such a beautiful writer. Not to mention a talented artist. Mm-hmm. Um, he he captures. I mean, it's certainly of. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot of negative, of course, in his portrayal of anything about the Texas Brigade. Um, mm-hmm. But as a kind of a family member who had uncles who had served in the unit, he really kind of captured a lot of the spirit um, and the kind of the fire that really drove a lot of these men to serve um, and just, just captured it beautifully. It's a powerful novel. Now, I would guess most of our listeners uh, certainly have heard of the Texas Brigade. Uh, they're comfortable with the terminology, but... Uh, if, if anyone's tuning in for the first time, how big is a brigade? What are we talking about? We're talking about, oh, about 2,000, 2,500 guys. Um, at the beginning of the war, it's going to be the 1st, 4th, and 5th Texas Infantry. They're going to be joined by the 18th Georgia um, and about eight companies of Wade Hampton, South Carolina Legion. And by the time you get to late 1862, after Antietam, the Georgians and the South Carolinians are going to kind of um, – move out of the unit and the third Arkansas will move in. And so that'll be really the makeup of the brigade for the duration of the war. So those kind of three Texas units are the core makeup of, of the brigade. And of course the size of that brigade though, keep in mind is going to dwindle um, as their casualty rates increase as the war drags on. Well, that's one of the things that is striking uh, in in the book, Battle After Battle, the, the brigade suffers these terrible losses. Uh, what uh, Was there something you found in terms of any one identifiable characteristic of, of you know, ideology, social class, uh, motivation that that made this unit different from others? Yes. I mean, there's a couple of things, and it was, it was something I was really looking at as I wrote the book. Um, I think one thing you have to keep in mind is just how driven this unit was from the very beginning of the war. I mean, the 1st Texas in particular 
left for Virginia, left Texas for Virginia before they even had official permission from the Confederate government that they would that they would be accepted rather than needed you know, um, out west in Texas for kind of Western defenses. And you also have to keep in mind these men could have served just as honorably uh, closer to home. Uh, they could, you know, they could have served in the Western Theater, certainly in the Trans-Mississippi West. They chose to serve in Virginia because that's where they thought they could make kind of the greatest contribution. And so when you think about soldier motivation arguments, you'd have to keep in mind that these men are highly motivated to begin with. So when I say things like, you know, for the duration of the war, they only had a 6% desertion rate, which is exceptionally low, that's part of that early motivation. But the other kind of two components that I argue you really have to understand with this unit is that number one, they also had exceptionally strong relationships between the officers and the men, which led to very successful units um, in battle, um, but also in camp. And it, they had just sup- superb officers and they had excellent strong unit cohesion. And then the last thing I think we have to keep in mind, and it's a strong argument I make through the book, is that to understand what makes these elite units so successful, you also have to understand their families at home. They came from families that financially were able to make the sacrifices they would have to make with these men gone for, you know, for a lot of them for four years. Um, they were able to, to really sustain themselves with the men gone. And if they couldn't, other Texas Brigade families were able to help sustain families within within the units. So, I mean, these men came from these largely middle-class families. They, they A significant number of the officers, about two-thirds of the officers, came from slave-owning households, about one-third of the men. This is out of the Texas regiments. Mm-hmm. And so they were a brigade that was highly determined. Um, they had absolutely superb leadership and unit cohesion. And they had the home front support that allowed them to really kind of focus on the war um, and and focus on the, the dedicated fighting that they wanted to commit to it. Well, it, it's interesting. We've seen uh, work like like Joseph Gladar's book on the Army in Northern Virginia that gives statistics for things like uh, social or economic class, slave ownership, and so on. And the numbers you show for Hood's Brigade do show them as being atypical in that uh, in many ways, they're better off, and, and uh, uh, so the officers more invested in, in slave ownership. But there are many other things that distinguish this this unit, and we'll talk about them. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Talk more with our guest, Susanna J. Earl, author of Hood's Tex- Texas Brigade, the Soldiers and Families of the Confederacy's Most Celebrated Unit. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. 
Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Susanna Ural, author of Hood's Texas Brigade, the Soldiers and Families of the Confederacy's Most Celebrated Unit. And we talked a little bit in the first segment about the Origins and the uh, the some of the things that made this unit unique: its uh, social origins, its leadership, uh, its motivation. Uh, Susanna, when the unit is first organized in Virginia, the regiments make their way individually to uh, to Virginia. Is there training there different, uh, or, or is this more or less what most Civil War regiments went through in the first year of the war? Their training's pretty standard. Um, it's the only thing that really stood out to me was, well, you know what, even as I say it, I don't know if it's hugely exceptional for some of the early units, but one thing that did stand out was the men's determination to really pick their own commanders, including, you know, up to the rank of colonel regimental commanders, which, of course, these were appointed um, by the Confederate government, Jefferson Davis, um, and you know the Texans didn't like that. They often wanted to choose their own, and so when men would come into camp who they really didn't like, um, they didn't like R.T.P. Allen, uh, who was a Texan actually, but they just thought he was a martinet, and they didn't like Frank Schaller, um, and they'd basically just kind of terrorize him um, until they left. And so this again, this kind of stood out. They were a, they could be a hard, hard unit to command. And so I think in some ways that led to some problems for the unit down the road. But in other ways, once they did find a commander that worked with them, it was it was an exceptional relationship. I was struck by the description, and, and you talk about many of these individuals, where they came from, what they did before the war, about their families. Uh, most of them are immigrants to Texas at some point. Of, of course, Texas has not been in the Union all that long, and uh, you have a lot of people settling, moving from Virginia, North Carolina, or other states, and moving out to Texas. And I wonder, if is there a degree, do you think, of, of self-conscious uh, Texanism among these men, that they they are 
Uh, most of them are not born in Texas, so they they become especially Texan. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, I think among kind of their peers at home, I don't know that there was a need to be Texan, right? Because I mean, a lot of the mm-hmm. a lot of their friends and neighbors wouldn't have been born there as well. They were right. overwhelmingly Southern but not necessarily Texan. You don't really see it until they leave Texas, right? And they're mm-hmm. they're on the March East and they're getting to Virginia. And, you know, Mark Smither will talk about, you know, we did a war whoop because they think we're all these kind of wild <laughs> frontiersmen who fight Indians. And, you know, they're, then, then they definitely play up that Texas angle. Um, what I think they're more, most proud of, though, is, is the brigade itself, you know, of, of Hood's Texas Brigade. So in their first year in Virginia, they... Uh you know, their experience is, is, as you say, that of other regiments. They skirmish uh, in the uh, the front under Johnston. What is uh, what is the effect of, of their, their first, com- when is their first major combat experience? Their first big battle is going to be at um, Gaines Mill, mm-hmm. 27 June of 1862. Um, and it's it's a real test because you're right. I mean, most of that winter, they were part of the Potomac blockade uh, for the winter of 61-62. They made a name for them themselves with you know, scouting and small fighting, but there, was, there wasn't any clear evidence that they were going to be able to be part of this kind of disciplined, uh, effective regiments and you know, comprise this brigade until you see them um, really engaged in that, some of that heavy fighting at the end of the day at Gaines Mill and they're part of that essential breakthrough. And it's, I mean, it's, yes, they're, they're going to have other major battles in which they play, you know, a tremendously essential role throughout the remainder of the war. But, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that when the Veterans Association organized itself um, in the post-war period, I mean, they, they would almost always have their annual reunions on June 27. I mean, that was just an incredibly important anniversary for them. And their performance at that battle, I've, I've been to the battlefield, I'm sure many listeners have, uh, and if you haven't, see if you can't find a way to do it, it's absolutely worth seeing. Uh, they they went down uh, into a, a big gully and came back up the other side under fire. It, it, it's a remarkable piece of terrain for a unit to, to fight its way across. Yeah, and not just, you know, to, to do that, right? Where I mean, they're just, they're closing as quickly as they can. You know, John Bell Hood, you know, the original commander of the 4th Texas, now commanding this brigade, is, you know, reminding them, you know, you just need to keep moving, you know, to, you know don't kind of start, to kind of stop, to kind of load and fire, and he's trying to close this kind of open space as quickly as he can. It's it's not just, you know, how difficult that terrain was, but that this is this is their first major battle, and that they're able to do this so successfully. Um, it. It, it really sets them apart. That's the beginning of them kind of breaking away from the pack as this, this kind of unit to watch. Then uh, they, they fight at Second Manassas. What was their experience there? Um, it's very successful. It's very bloody. Um, the 5th Texas in particular uh, goes up kind of most famously against the 5th New York. And the 5th Texas is, is very successful. The brigade overall is. Um, but again, you're going to suffer heavy casualties. And if, you know, you kind of put that 2nd Manassas experience in line with the casualties that they suffer at Gaines Mill, the, the casualties, you know, that they're going to suffer shortly after 2nd Manassas at Antietam. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly uh, bloody and difficult year for them. 
but again, I mean, it's it's they continue to demonstrate and to to demonstrate their ability to fight well when they're called on. The well, you mentioned Antietam, which chronologically the next big battle. This is one if if people know anything about the Texas Brigade, they've heard of the cornfield. Uh, this was uh, this was hard to read. I have to say the. Uh, uh, not because it was not well written, but because Good. of the Im- images that it evoked yeah. of of just how brutal the fighting was in this battle. Uh, what? How did men stand that? I mean, talk a bit about the the cornfield engagement. The fight in the cornfield. I mean, there's a couple things to keep in mind. The first is is what I was just saying. I mean, keep in mind. That you know, this this is a unit much like the rest of of Lee's army that has has been going on the move basically since since that spring, since the beginning of the uh, 1862 campaign season. And this is a brigade in particular that by this point kind of continues to be placed in some of the most difficult positions because Lee and other commanders are realizing that they can really rely on it. And so when these men go into the cornfield. You know, they it's they're they're pretty experienced veterans at this point. They're optimistic. They're determined. Um, you have, you might have a couple of these kind of new recruits in the unit, but for the most part, they're they're very determined men and very very well trained and experienced. When they go into the cornfield, though, of course, there's going to be multiple challenges that they, they just have to deal with in terms of kind of the breakdown of communication. Of um, the first Texas in particular moves out head of the brigade um, much more quickly than they should have. And while they're going to fight um, a particularly desperate and hard fight, I mean, at the first Texas basically gets completely isolated. I remember the, one of the first times I was really touring the battlefield, I was walking around with Tom Clemens, mm-hmm. and I was trying to find on the map, I was like, where the heck did the first Texas go? You know, and then I find him, you know, basically kind of surrounded by all this, all this blue. Um, at the end of the cornfield. And, you know, I mean, this is how the 1st Texas is going to get the reputation for having suffered the most casualties of any regiment on either side in the war. And, you know, we often think it's kind of in the low 80s. And that's, you know, often the number that's quoted about 83% casualties. But if you look at Colonel Work and his reports, um, not only at the time, but especially some of his post-war accounts, he flat out says that, no, it was probably closer to 87% casualties. And, sorry, um, go ahead. No, no, no. Okay. I'm looking at the numbers that you quote yeah. in the book. 211 yeah. men go into the cornfield. Uh, 182 don't come out, killed, yeah. wounded, or missing. Yeah. Uh, that's just shocking. Uh, and it's, it's not just that, right? I mean, it's 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 the numbers are what's often quoted, but where I get frustrated in accounts is when you know we 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 don't take the time to actually visualize not only. What, I mean, what this does to these relationships with these men, what it, what it does to the kind of the breakdown of a unit. I mean, when you lose that many officers, how are you going to be able to function? Um, yeah, you're at, you're kind of at the end of the campaign season, but not really if you know kind of some of the next fighting that's going to be coming up. So this becomes an issue. But you also have to think about, you know, these are these are guys who a lot of times grew up together. I mean, it's not just that you have brothers, you have cousins, you have neighbors. And what does this do to a home county when a regiment um, is just torn to shreds like that. And so that was one of the points that I was trying to make in the book, that we kind of need to understand this this full picture. Um, it, I think if you do a unit history right, we need to get that, that kind of full spectrum of the experience. That's an interesting point about unit histories because the, uh, the regimental history or the brigade history as a genre 
you know, fell out of favor. You, you had the, the John Poland and the 20th Maine kind of books from the 1950s and 60s, and then people stopped, uh, academic writers stopped writing them. They become the, the, the province of uh, you know, enthusiasts, but not professionally trained historians. Uh, but then more recently, we've seen um, Leslie Gordon's book on the 16th Connecticut and, and your book here. Is is Are you pointing the way to a new generation of unit history? I hope so. I mean, I certainly am not, you know, the only one doing this. Um, you know, Leslie's book is absolutely superb. Mm-hmm. I mean, Earl Hess has done this. Um, you know, there's there's certainly kind of a wealth. I mean, you, you can go back to Alan Nolan's Iron Brigade, right? Which, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of us just devoured. Um over the years and usually kind of multiple times. But one of the things I'm trying to push is, is this kind of full perspective of understanding kind of the communities where these guys come from, that they're going to go home to, that they're going to return on recruiting duty during the war. You know, are their families going to be able to sustain the kind of sacrifices that are going to have to be made in a war? So, yeah, I mean, I wanted to get the absolute full picture of understanding not only what happens when these guys go off, but also, you know, what, what are the worlds from which they're coming and will they, you know, kind of return to, and how does the war shape and continue to reshape that? That ties in with uh, what happens after Antietam, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation, whereas there is a lot of commentary from the Confederacy. You found Hood's men did not particularly respond one way or another to the proclamation. Uh, that was a curious uh, finding. Yeah, tell me about it. I kept looking <laughs> and looking. You know, I mean, that's one of those, you know, I mean, you teach this war. I mean, you're always talking about these turning points, these kind of mm-hmm. these, these moments that shift attitudes and motivations. And I'm looking through all these letters trying to find, you know, some kind of a reaction like we've kind of known to kind of expect Mm-hmm. among Confederate soldiers and concerns, and they don't. And what I finally started thinking about was, okay, well, when do they start to get frustrated? And, you know, it's it's really not until later in the war when they actually start to see African-American soldiers um, shooting at them, fighting against them in the war. Mm-hmm. And an armed African-American combatant for a man of Hood's Texas Brigade and kind of the world in which he was raised is is just almost inconceivable. And so that's what I started to notice. And and the conclusion I drew from the lack of a reaction to emancipation, to the emancipation proclamation was really this, I don't think they thought it was going to happen. I thought it was, I think they kind of thought of something that the North, North was going to do, but um, it was a proclamation by Lincoln, but they didn't necessarily see it as affecting them in any, in any way long-term because they weren't going to lose the war. And you you show even after Gettysburg, and and you describe their engagement on the second day, uh, fighting against Sickles' corps uh, over by the, the Round Tops. You, you you show that in the aftermath, they they're not, they certainly don't see Gettysburg as a turning point. They don't see oh this is the defeat. It's all downhill from here. They seem to come away from that once again with enormous casualties, but they're they're still ready to go. They are, and it's you know it's it's important to keep in mind too. You throw Vicksburg into the mix; they know when Vicksburg falls, and they know how cut off they are going to be from their families, and they still don't see this as the end. Now, one thing to keep in mind, though, is if you look at their letters immediately after the battle, they mm-hmm. are upset about the casualties that they suffer. They are they do recognize 
um, Gettysburg is a defeat. But it's about three weeks later um, that you'll start to see them claiming, including, I mean, letters from the same men claiming that, ah, oh, was it really a defeat? You know, we captured more guys than they did. You know, they're, they're completely, they, 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 this is just not a problem for them. And again, that's what I'm talking about with that exceptionally high level of motivation and determination. So they being cut off by the fall of Vicksburg, did that, do you suppose, influence them that they, they might as well be diehard because there's no way to get home at this point? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, they already were. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's not that they, I mean, it's not like they can become more diehard. Um, but, you know, it's, it's they're worried about it. They, they are frustrated with some letters. You know, they're going to get even few letters um, now from home. And a lot of these letters can't get back home. They're going to have trouble with recruiting. But no, I mean, you're going to continue to see the men um, kind of rushing back to the to the unit, which a lot of the guys kind of refer to as home, even when they come back from furloughs. Um, this they, they continue to be highly, highly motivated. So they they have this low desertion rate. They lose more men from fighting than from disease. They're they're clearly a, a an elite combat unit, but everybody has a low point. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about that uh, after the Battle of Chickamauga, when in the fall of 1863, uh, Hood's Texas Brigade members do start to at least temporarily question what's going on. So that's a question uh, we'll ask when we come back, talking tonight with Susanna J. Ural, author of Hood's Texas Brigade, the Soldiers and Families of the Confederacy's Most Celebrated Unit. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Susanna Ural, author of Hood's Texas Brigade, the fam- Soldiers and Families of the Confederacy's Most Celebrated Unit. We've been talking about the record of the Texas Brigade through the Battle of Gettysburg on into 1863 in the autumn, Battle of Chickamauga. Uh, Chickamauga is another Confederate victory, but... After the battle, the the brigade goes through the winter of its discontent. What 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 went wrong at that time? Well, two things, of course. I mean, Hood is badly injured. Um, it's one of the last time a lot of the men are going to see John Bell Hood, um, the men of the brigade. And um, you know, this is also going to be when they're separated from the Army in Northern Virginia um, and kind of sent west with Longstreet's First Corps, and it. They weren't happy about it. I mean, they they really identified themselves with Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. And as much as they respected Longstreet, they were never entirely happy with that winter. Um, Now, in fairness, too, they also run into some significant uh, supply problems where, I mean, their uniforms are just in shreds that winter. They don't have enough food. What food they have is just almost unedible. And um, it's a... It is an incredibly, incredibly difficult winter for the brigade. Now, they do get shipped back to Virginia. Uh, They do recover some of their numbers. One thing that I didn't see in the book that I was curious about was the religious revival that swept through the Army of Northern Virginia in the winter of 63-64. Did Hood's brigade not take part in that? It's interesting. A couple of other people have asked me about that. And, yeah, I mean... Yes, I mean, some of them will kind of talk about these revivals, um, just kind of referencing them happening, Mm -hmm. but they don't talk about it in their letters as though it had a tremendous impact on them individually, Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't see a tremendous impact on the unit. There was no kind of um, refocusing, if you will, on the cause uh, kind of through their faith, Mm -hmm. rather you know, if they're feeling saved in the spring of 1864, it's because they're back in Virginia, they're back with Lee, um, they're back where they think they belong and can make sure that this war gets won. And they really do see themselves as key to that victory. It's striking how many wounded men rejoin the ranks, that their mm-hmm. their numbers, after all the casualties you describe in 1863, they, they get their numbers back up uh, and they're not getting fresh recruits in Texas. No, most definitely not. I mean, I think four guys come in. Um, in the spring of 1864, four recruits for the entire brigade. And so, um, no, I mean, it's, 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 it was amazing to me because that was one of the other things I really started to do some investigating in when I was writing the book and really some number crunching was, you know, I keep listing all these casualties and I'm like, how do they even have a brigade left? Right. And so that's where I started really charting out, okay, who's, who's winding up in these hospitals? Then, you know, going back through the service records, okay, who's, who's winding up back in the ranks? And that's what I was really able to kind of chart out with, with the help of some other historians was these guys, I mean, if, if, if they're in hospital, they're, they're hurrying to get, at least sufficiently healthy, if not 
healthy, healthy uh, to get back to the brigade. If they get sent home on recruiting duty, uh, you know, Dugal Williams talks about, you know, as much as it felt good to be home, he didn't feel at home until he got back to the unit in Virginia. Um, you know, it's, it's when, as soon as they get exchanged, uh, if they're prisoners, they're, they're rushing back to the brigade. And that's, that's again, that's, that's that part of unit cohesion that makes it such an exceptional unit. So I think you said there something like 7,000 men serve in the brigade, all told. Is that, mm-hmm. That's uh, correct. Yep, just over 7,000 throughout the entire war. So with a starting strength of 2,000, uh, they, they, they end up with, with a fraction of that. So they do suffer these enormous casualties, but in many cases you've got men being wounded more than once, coming back, fighting again. So they go into the overland campaign. Uh, how, how big were their numbers then? Did they get over a thousand by the time they got in? Wow, Jerry, you're turning. stumping me. I can't remember. Uh, I got to yeah. remember what I wrote. I think it's about eight hundred, yeah. uh, if I remember right. And I'm calling uh, that off the top <laughs> of my head. You know, this is, this is always terrible. It's like, dang it, I wrote the book. I should know that. Um, no, I, but I, I think they the go feeling. in with about yeah, <laughs> they yeah. go in with about eight hundred guys, and it's um, it's just it's impressive to me just again how 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 well they're going to be able to fight. And, and I mean, and, and by well, I mean, make a significant contribution in these campaigns, um, despite, you know, the casualties that they're continuing to take. The, uh, it's in the, the wilderness that you first get the lead to the rear story that the Texas Brigade wouldn't, wouldn't go into battle until uh, General Lee had taken himself out of danger, and then they would go forward and, and do anything for him. Uh, is apocryphal? Did, did that really happen? Oh gosh, yeah, absolutely, um, and it's—I know—it's—it's it's almost you know too good to be true. But um, mm-hmm. no, I mean it's they—they they took that relationship um, with Lee kind of very seriously. They—they—they—they they, they, they truly would do just about kind of anything for him. And and I mean you know you hear Confederate soldiers saying this all the time, but of course the Hood's Texans' attitude is that they're different because he knew them personally, right? This is this impression, not, not as individual men, but a, as a brigade, you know, he singled them out. Um, and, you know, these, these men are, um, they're very confident is probably the, the, the most humble word to use for it. <laughs> um, very, uh, you know, arrogant in, 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 but I mean, in some cases very well earned and that, that relationship with Lee and that, you know, they're, they're going to, you know, protect him and he, you, you can trust us to go in and do what you need done. Um, it's a, it's a very real and a very powerful one for them. You know, Lee pays them back in the, the one moment in the winter of, of 1864 the, during the Petersburg siege when, when the brigade actually faces an existential threat of being consolidated with other units because it's so shrunken. And you describe the, uh, the appeal to Jefferson Davis. Uh, talk about the officer who makes that appeal, Howdy Martin. Howdy Martin. And he's probably uh, one of the most popular men in the unit, not because, you know, he's this kind of disciplined commander who can get the guys to do anything. He's more of a it's kind of an avuncular character, right? Where it's, 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 it's his company is not necessarily the tidiest. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's a pre-war lawyer who's always getting his guys, you know, kind of out of the guardhouse, getting them out of trouble. Um, and they send him to really make their case because he is um, such a kind of a beloved commander of the unit, but also such a kind of a convincing um, figure. And his nickname, of course, uh, his name's William Martin, but his, the howdy comes from, you know, he just couldn't, you know, kind of fathom the need to always be saluting people. And so, you know, somebody salutes him and he just kind of waves howdy. And 
you know, it's, it's just, it's just so them, um, you know, to have, but, he, you know, to have this kind of, kind of jovial almost character and yet just, you know, determined um, and battle um, as well. I mean, Howdy Martin, you know, they would, they would talk about him giving, you know, sermons, um, not religious sermons, kind of more motivational sermons at the beginning of the war. One of the guys said it looked like he could eat a Yankee raw. You know, so this is the guy who they send to really plead their case to stay together as a unit. And he, he's, you know, going to go before Jefferson Davis and make this case. And Robert E. Lee is there as well. And other units, you know, do not successfully uh, convince um, the leadership that they that they need to stay intact. But both Lee and Davis recognize what the Texas Brigade has done, and um, they agree, and and they let them be. And it's an it's an incredibly small unit by that point, but they do remain intact. Now they end up at Appomattox with the rest of the Army in Northern Virginia, and uh, they they surrender. Everyone surrenders. They how, how do they reconcile that with their self-perceived invincibility? They'll never be convinced that they did anything wrong. Um, they, you know, just it's kind of this attitude of, well, we didn't lose. Um, you know, some of y'all may have lost, uh, but we did everything anybody ever asked us to. You know, and it's it's this it's that confidence, right, of of an elite unit. Um, and no, I mean they're. There come there are a couple of dark moments that the guys certainly talk about. Um, you know, Bill Fletcher, as he's leaving, as he's headed home, talks about some kind of very kind of dark moments, kind of wondering what on earth happened. Um, Dugal Williams, who I mentioned before, talks about you know right when he got home, he was he was bent in every sense of the word. You know, basically kind of a broken man. But they they continue to take tremendous pride in what they did, and they don't see themselves as really having contributed to that defeat. Other other problems did. I thought it was striking how you describe when they leave Virginia and head back to Texas, they, you know, on foot if necessary, uh, none of them even seem to remotely consider the prospect of taking up arms as guerrillas or joining with some other unit. Uh, it, it's as if, if, if the Texas Brigade didn't win, we're not going to bother with you guys. Yeah, it is. It it surprised me to be honest, because mm-hmm. you know here are some guys who are just so determined. They're so devoted to the Confederate cause. But it's exactly what you said. I mean, they, that's that's certainly the impression that I got. That no, I mean they're 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 walking past other armies that they certainly could have joined, um, and they don't. You know, they're just they're done because I really think they believe that if if Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia can't do it, nobody can. So they are just going to head back home. What do they find when they get there? Um, a lot of hardship. Um, um, they're, you know, this, this kind of broken, if you will, some of these, these communities that they're going to have to rebuild. Um, you know, they, they find, in some cases, incredibly determined families that were kind of willing to keep going. Um, but for the most part, they're just going to kind of go through the process of trying to put their lives back together, um, particularly in a very different way. I mean, you know, without, without slavery, uh, they're going to have to recognize emancipation. It's a very different world for them. One of the many ways that this unit differs from others, or at least differs from the traditional interpretation of, of Civil War veterans, uh, as you point out, there's no uh, so-called hibernation period that, that some historians have described the typical Confederate veteran is returning home and not wanting to talk about it, having having lost, uh, they just want to put it behind 
move on with their lives. And later in their lives, they'll they'll join the the UCV and they'll go to reunions. But for a time, just silence. And you said that with your unit, there there was no hibernation period. They stayed active. No, right. I mean, there's a couple problems with the hibernation period um, argument that Gerald Linderman really put forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one, Brian Matthew Jordan has really kind of put the nail in that, you know, the coffin of that argument by pointing out that, you know, these guys, they, a lot of them recruited in the same towns, the same counties. And, you know, you, you can't tell me that two guys run into each other on Saturday, you know, when they're you know, in, in town to, I don't know, sell some cattle or something. And they don't talk about the war. They don't, they don't happen to talk about really in many ways, the defining experience of their lives. And the other problem with the hibernation theory was that the, you know, the families at home really don't have any understanding of what these men went through. And for some of these Texas families, you know, that could be true. I mean, Texas really did not feel the war as much as say families in Virginia and Mississippi and Carolinas did. But again, you know, if if you kind of look at some of those areas, the problem with the hibernation argument is, you know, I think the women of, of Winchester, Virginia, know something about war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's it's not like they, they don't understand what these soldiers went through. So, yeah, I mean, Hood's Texans really maintain their contacts with each other. And as they rebuild their lives with new businesses, I think one of the most surprising things I found was that when they advertise, you know, their new businesses, they're not advertising it based on their experiences. They're advertising it based on the fact that, you know, you should support my business because I served in Hood's Texas Brigade. Hmm. And, you know, I think I think the best example I can give you of that is you know, Dr. R.J. Breckenridge, who was a physician in the 5th Texas and ended the war as the chief medical examiner of the Army in Northern Virginia. And when he opened his medical practice in Houston after the war, he didn't mention his tremendous amount of training and experience. Uh, he just simply advertised himself as a gentleman who was well known to the old Texas Brigade. And that's about all the endorsement they needed. Wow. Now, just in the last couple of minutes, I want to ask about the monument erected in 1910. Uh, Today, of course, Civil War monuments, Confederate monuments specifically, are highly controversial. Uh, I thought it was interesting that the Texas Brigade uh, proponents of the monument argued for one that was simply about a common soldier that didn't have uh, Jefferson Davis's picture or name on it, that wasn't about the cause, was just about the unit. Has that? Do you happen to know the, the current status of that monument and whether that has given it any kind of immunity? Uh I don't know that it's going to give it immunity. I think one of the challenges it's facing is, you know, it's kind of its location uh, kind of on capital grounds, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that is a challenge. But it was definitely something that was very, very important to the men, you know, that as much as they loved Lee and some of their other commanders, that this this was about the brigade um, and it wasn't about any single one of them. It, it really was to be this kind of. Gen- not generic, but this almost kind of universal symbol of the Texas Brigade soldier, and they were they were determined to have it that way. Well, it, it's uh, that's a monument to them, and whatever happens to that monument, they have another monument in the form of the book Hood's Texas Brigade: The Soldiers and Families of the Confederacy's Most Celebrated Unit by our guest tonight, Susanna Ural. Uh, if you have the slightest interest in Civil War. Uh, battles, small units, home fronts, uh, so many interesting things in this book. And listeners, you want to get a copy of this book. And Susanna, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. And listeners, as always, 
Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.